This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian LaTenry, and today we're going to be talking about another one of the big four. We're going to look at Anthrax's album from 1995, Stomp 442. And this technically was my choice. Uh, it was your choice, week. and I'm. I, I, this is what I love about this show already, is that we're already choosing, we've done Metallica's Saint Anger, we did Slayer's South of Heaven, and now we're doing Anthrax's Stomp 442. I don't think any of these three albums would have been the album that people that would have immediately come to mind that we would have picked for any of those bands. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, that's probably true, actually, yeah. But, I mean, we said at the outset that we are going to cover the big four first. You kind of have to, especially, you know, on a podcast called Thrash It Out. Um, Right. But, yeah, the actual albums that we choose from each artist, maybe they are a bit unusual, yeah. But, see, this this is my favourite Anthrax album, bar none. I, I could listen to this album over and, and frequently do actually listen to it on repeat over and over again. I love it so much. I think that, so one of the things we need to figure out today is why that is and what that says about your musical taste, because this is an album that when you look at the spectrum of what Anthrax has put out over the entirety of their career is in many ways, the odd man out. Yeah, it is. That's true. And maybe that says something about, yeah, it says a lot about my taste, I'm sure. Um, but. Well, yeah, I mean, as we go through, I I know why I like this album so much. Um, (laughs) And I know why I like it compared to most of Anthrax's other stuff. I mean, I am not a sort of an overall long time massive Anthrax fan, a bit like Slayer. Uh I love I love what they stand for. I love, you know, their principles. I also love the fact that, you know, they've kind of really stayed true, probably more than any of the big four, really, in a way. They have really stayed true to their roots. Slayer has, without a doubt, yeah. But their actual music, sort of basically outside of the John Bush era, I can really kind of take or leave. And a lot of that is to do with Joey Belladonna uh, as a singer. I just, I really, I don't really rate him as a vocalist. But more than that, the songs that they write when he's in the band are very different to the songs they wrote when John Bush was in the band which I think is really interesting from a very different. Yeah. From a songwriter's point of view as well, writing for somebody with, because they have such different voices, such different vocal styles. I guess you can't help, but write towards somebody's style. And you really see that in the difference between the previous album and this one. For people who don't know, Joey Belladonna was Anthrax's original singer from the eighties up until 1990, I think. Um, and then he was fired. Right. So Belladonna was, uh, so the, their first singer for Anthrax was Neil Turbin, who who did one album with them, which was Fiscal oh, Metal. Oh, I forgot about him, yeah. And uh, Neil Turbin has a current band called The Death Riders, I believe, and he put out a solo album, but he that's a great album that people should check out if they haven't. But then Joey Belladonna came along, and he went through spreading the disease through uh, persistence of time. So he was there from 1984 to 1982, which is an eight-year and change span, and he put out four albums with the band. John Bush comes along in 1992 and went through 2005. He also put out four albums with Anthrax over that period of time. However, John Bush was in the band for a 13-year stint. And that's the thing that blows away most Anthrax fans' huh. minds because they believe 
it, it, it's a very much a Van Halen argument with people who are fans of Anthrax. You, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. it's the Van Halen, Van Hagar thing. And so, much like the David Lee Roth diehards, there are Joey Belladonna diehards who believe that what they did with Belladonna is Anthrax. And now that he's back in the band, they're back to being Anthrax. And what they did with John Bush was something different. And then there's people who like the John Bush uh, era better. For me, um, I love both of those eras, and we can talk about what I like about each one of them, but I will say that of the big four, I believe that John Bush is the best vocalist that has been in any of those four bands ever. Oh, I think he's yeah. by far and away the best. He's better than Mustaine, he's better than Hetfield, he's better than Belladonna, he is better than Tom Araya. So, uh, for Well, you me, know Hetfield wanted him to sing in Metallica. I did know that, yes. And Hetfield yeah. also has heaped a lot of praise on some of the John Bush era Anthrax songs. Like he he was oh, famous for saying he was famous for saying that uh the song Only, which appears on volume eight, is No, a, that's a, Sound of White Noise. Is it? Yeah, oh, it is that Sound was of the, White Noise. That right. was the main single from Sound of White Noise. That was the song where everybody was like, Oh, Anthrax have sold out, man. <laughs> well, and Hetfield basically said that is a perfect song from start to finish. Like he yeah. it's something that he wished that he would have written. And so uh he has a lot of respect for Bush and a lot of respect for that era of anthrax. But um So John Bush comes along in they fire Joe Belladonna. John Bush comes along in nineteen ninety-two after yep. Armored Saint had split up due to the death of one of its members. Mm-hmm. And um and they released Sound of White Noise, which is a great album, and I believe actually still their best selling album, because it was around the time when well, it was it was ninety two. It was around the time when all of the big four were kind of riding high on the strength of Metallica becoming such a huge band. It is without a doubt the best selling album of the John Bush era, right. and it may be their best selling album. Let's see, I can look that up real quick. I, I but think, it, it was gold. It, it is, went yeah. gold. Yeah. yeah. Um. But the thing is, now I like that album just fine. But if you listen to it, it sounds like no other Anthrax album. It doesn't quite sound like their albums with Joey Belladonna, but it also doesn't sound like their later albums with John Bush. It sounds like an album that uh, Scott Ian and Charlie Benante wrote, maybe without even knowing who the vocalist would be, and then just kind of gave it to John Bush and said, here, sing this. I mean, maybe there was more involvement than that. I don't know. Or maybe that is literally what happened. Who can say, you know? But it just sounds very different. And then you get to this album, to Stomp 442, and to me, this sounds like, oh, okay, John Bush is involved now. Like, this is the, the music plays to his strengths. The vocal melodies play to his strengths. It sounds like he's, the way he sings, he just sounds like he's got more invested in it, you know? I I do agree with that. I think that this is an album that, and and I use a lot of ambiguous terms like energy and stuff when we talk about different albums, but <laughs> so <do> this <laughs> is an album that has a lot of, um, a lot of anger and a lot of energy in it. And I do feel like lyrically, because Bush definitely um, was involved in writing lyrics for all of the songs on this album, him and Scott Ian, it looks like, did most of the lyrics when when Charlie is the one who has always been uh, the main songwriter uh, of Anthrax, and he certainly that was the case here. But you're right, I think that the music was written more with him in mind and absolutely plays to his strength. So if you knew him from Armored Saint and you knew his style, I think this is a little bit more what you would expect from John Bush than than maybe the previous album. Although Sound of White Noise is a fantastic album. And, oh, it's a great uh, album, yeah. But you're yeah. right. I think this one, this one feels like it fits John Bush better, and certainly his lyrics, which, again, if you listen to Armored Saint, especially nowadays, um, he's, he's a very... 
uh, sort of reflective writer in terms of his lyrics. There's a lot of sort of gazing back at what what yesteryear was and sort of uh you know the idea of being forged in fire and and you know carrying your scars with you forward and and stuff like that so i I like i always liked his lyrics because they're not they're always about something you know and they're usually about and i think as we get older we appreciate lyrics like that but they're usually about sort of looking at your life and looking at the mistakes that you've made and you know deciding that you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and that kind of stuff Uh, so i do i like that and i like that about this album and that's an attitude that John Bush, as far as I can see, has always maintained as well, because he was kind of unceremoniously dumped from the band after uh, We've Come For You All, I think it was. Um, yeah, I, they basically screwed him. I mean, yeah. you but have he's the, not bitter about it. Like He's done many, inter- or if he is, he hides it very well. <laughs> he's done uh, many, in- many interviews where, you know, he says, look, no, I'm not. It wasn't great. I'm not happy about it, but I don't carry it around like a weight around my neck because what would be the point of that? That would just make me a bitter person and that's not right. who I want to be. No, and he just and he obviously uses the 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 lyrical piece of the music that he works on as as therapeutic because he works through all of that mm. stuff in the songs that he writes. But yeah, they they pretty much screwed him and you know the whole time when they wanted to do um reunion tour with Joey Belladonna but also have him be a part of it where the both of them would sing and and sort of be a part of that and then when they did do the big four and they brought Joey Belladonna back they were still kind of thinking that he was going to come back around and you know when they got serious about putting out another album that he would sort of be waiting for them and I think he really got turned off by the the sort of uh not only the cash grab of bringing Joey Belladonna back but the the notion that he he's just around for whenever they decide that they need him to be their singer and stuff like that. And and I thought that right. was pretty disrespectful. He's on call for when they can't get Joey. Yes, and I thought it was extremely disrespectful of the work that he had done with them because, again, by that point in time, you've got a guy who's put 13 years into this band who has now been the longest tenured singer of Anthrax. He is the singer of Anthrax. He has put out four albums with them. Um, their album, We've Come For You All, it may be my favorite Anthrax album of all of them, but it's definitely my favorite Anthrax album of the John Bush era, and I thought it was not only a return to form, but a freaking masterpiece when it came out. So, you know, they had just come off of putting out their best album, or or at the very least, a widely respected and well-reviewed album with John Bush, and then things fall apart. And that tends to be Anthrax's, you know, cycle of (laughs) self-abuse, is that they they do the same thing. Because again, coming off Persistence of Time, that was after the Clash of the Titans tour. You know, they were at a point in time where they were selling a lot of records, even though grunge was sort of uh, taking over and the musical landscape was changing, Anthrax was extremely popular. They were in, they were firmly entrenched as one of the big four. They were firmly entrenched in the idea of the Clash of the Titans, which had been a very successful tour. And so, and then things fall apart. And so now, you know, they go through the same thing again. And I think we've all been waiting, even in the current era, for the other shoe to drop with Joey Belladonna, because every once in a while you'll hear, you know, stuff's not working out. And and I do, I think it just comes down to, um, you don't see it publicized as much, but Scott Ian and Charlie Bonante are James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. 
and uh, <laughs> maybe the two of them have a better relationship internally than James and, and Lars do in Metallica, but there are two captains to that ship, and everybody else is just you know part of the crew. And, and I think that's why you've seen Frank Bellow come and go at times, you know, Joey Vera from Armored Saint played bass for them for a while. That's why you've seen, uh, you know, Spitzleave and and uh, you know them sort of have rotating guitarists in there. It's because this is this is their show at this point. So we should mention that commercial decline as well, because that was, you know, people who weren't around for it may not realize now because metal is in kind of a much better place. But in the early '90s, there was a real because of grunge exploded and because everybody refused to use the word heavy metal around grunge, even though half yep. of the bands supposedly sold as grunge were clearly heavy metal bands like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. Sure. Um, there was a real backlash against what were perceived as like 80s, not hair metal, but against as 80s, just sort of like silly, thrashy, you know, hard metal yep. bands. And it's totally unfair, of course, but that's the way, you know, commercial stuff goes. Um, and this... For Anthrax, this was kind of the start of it because they rode a bit of a wave of that with Sound of White Noise. Well, I would say they were uh, they were at the top of the wave with Stomp 442. If you look at and any of their albums that was Well, no, I, I mean by... commercially. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean commercially. Sound of White Noise was commercially very successful, partly because they did modernize their sound, yep. but they were still very heavy. It's still a very heavy album, but they did sound like a more modern band. They didn't sound like an 80s thrash band, like the band that had done, you know, got the time or whatever. Um, and then this album was kind of the start of their commercial decline. Uh, Electra didn't promote the album. Uh, they actually left Electra or Electra dropped them one of the two because of the poor performance of this album. All of the big four went through a real down period in the mid nineties. And you can argue that for some of them, it was because they weren't producing the goods and weren't modernizing, but Anthrax were making the best albums of their bloody career and they couldn't get arrested. And I could not understand it at the time. I was listening to this stuff going, this is amazing. This is 10 times better than anything they've done before. And nobody is listening to it. But I think you uh, that I think that mindset is representative of a new fandom that found Anthrax when John Bush came to Anthrax. Because, it, it, you know, when I say found, obviously you and everybody else in the world knew who Anthrax was because they were, you know, one of the big four. So everybody knew who they were, but they weren't, um, they weren't as huge as those other bands, and and part of it was some people just didn't like the style of that band. When John Bush comes along, they became something different. And I think for a lot of fans who maybe were were into grunge and were into you know uh, what was becoming sort of the post grunge you know um, era or bands who previously did not identify as grunge who were sort of being influenced by that sound, there were some of these bands that started to pick up some of that stuff and became more attractive to listeners who. Of that type of music, and I think there was a lot of people that found Anthrax through Sound of White Noise, uh, and then obviously Stomp 442, because both of those albums I think are are moving towards a sound that is not at all previous Anthrax, and yeah. so they they sort, of, but they also lost a lot of that uh, original fan base as well because the Belladonna era was over, and the type of riff writing and way that they approached their entire sound was kind of over. And Stomp 442 was the exclamation point on that because Sound of White Noise, everybody has an experimental album. Everybody has an album <laughs> where, you know, and we've talked about the other, you know, we talked about Risk and we've talked about, you know, St. Anger and stuff like that. So all of these bands go through a period where they kind of ditch their old sound, try something new, and then in some ways have to 
come back from that or you know continue to evolve in a particular direction stomp 442 was basically anthrax saying oh no this is who we are now like yeah. you, you, what you heard the start of on Sound of White Noise. This is what Anthrax is now, and that this is sort of the breaking point for people who loved them before to say, "Oh, okay, this isn't the band that I grew up with. I'm going to exit stage left." And then it was sort of the point for other people to say, "Oh, I like this new Anthrax. I like this John Bush guy, and I like the I like the way that they're um, they're progressing at this point." So, so it is this sort of pivot transitional album for them, and. Kind Absolutely. of makes it one of the most interesting, whether you're a huge fan of the album or not. And can I say, just going back a little to something you mentioned earlier, can I say how stunned I was, not being a huge Anthrax fan from you know years ago, how stunned I was when I realised that Charlie Bonante had written all the music on this album. I was like, unlike you, Professor Brian, I am no metal historian, and I had no idea that Charlie was one of the main songwriters of Anthrax. I just assumed, as I'm sure most people did, that Scott Ian wrote the music because he's the he's the recognizable guy isn't he you know he's the guy everybody knows with the shaved head and the silly beard and by Absolutely. the way thank you Scotty and for making bald heads palatable within metal for those of us who you know don't have a lot um oh that makes two of us buddy as <laughs> as a guy who also started losing his hair in his late yeah. uh, teens and early 20s man that uh, that made it all but, better we'll talk about that more when we come to Pantera no doubt but you're right in terms of of uh Charlie being such a songwriting force and sort of the musical core. I remember being blown away by this album. And then when I read the, it was the first Anthrax album that I really paid attention to the credits, to be honest. Like I bought Sound of White Noise. I've got it on my shelf right now, but I didn't really pay that. You know, I, I flicked through the booklet, whatever. Didn't really pay that much attention. This one I loved so much. I was like, wow, I have got to look into this. And then when I saw there's a picture in the booklet of Charlie with a guitar, and, you know, at some point it says, like, music by Charlie Venanti. And I was just, like, mind blown. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I equate it to when people who just had a casual, you know, understanding of Nirvana realized that Dave Grohl was this all-around musician that uh, they maybe yeah. didn't, uh, you know, give him credit for. That is Charlie Benante. Like, he he plays, uh, on, on this album in particular, because it was their first album without Dan Spitz, he plays a lot of guitar on this album so uh and and that's the case with uh, with a handful of anthrax album too and they have uh they brought paul crook on who also has worked with sebastian bach and um uh, meatloaf so he came in and he i think he's uncredited in the actual he is he used to be dan spitz's guitar tech as well that's where that's where they knew him which i'm so glad you mentioned because that is a huge trend in metal band history when you look at um and that happens a ton with drummers when you look at the the techs of the guys that are in current bands and then you see the next person that they hire, very often it's someone who is a tech for the person who's currently in the band. That happened a lot with with uh, Megadeth and drummers, um, but that happens a lot. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. I'm glad that you mentioned drummers, actually, because I was going to mention Johnny Kelly, who was Sal Abrachato's, um drum tech in Typo Negative. And then when Sal left... Johnny Kelly took over. And the other reason that Johnny came to mind was because you were talking about people still thinking of Joey as the singer of Anthrax, even though John Bush had been in the band for longer. That's exactly what happened to Johnny Kelly. Like he made, you know, Sal made two albums with Typo Negative. Johnny Kelly made four, five, however many they made until Pete Steele died. And right up until the end, he was still the new guy. 
everybody was like, oh, the, yeah, the new guy. He's like, I've been in this band 20 years. Yep. <laughs> well, and now, and, and so now you can kind of see too that, you know, ba- based on when these guys come into these bands and, and sort of what albums they're associated with, it, it, in some ways, you mentioned Anthrax couldn't get arrested. John Bush could never get respect for the, for the contribution that he made. Um, that same mindset is basically Dave Mustaine's entire career. He is the guy that <laughs> yeah. got kicked out of Metallica. You know what I mean? And so, and we'll talk about more, that more when we go into yeah, his thing. But yeah. it, but it is these guys. You know, put this work in, and they create these amazing albums, and they they have these great contributions to these huge legacy bands, and they get no respect for that. And you know, and and that's what was so disappointing about when Joey Belladonna did come back to Anthrax because there were so many fans of Anthrax that just wanted to wipe the slate clean, as if the Bush era never existed. Yeah. Um, which is really sad because he he is a major force in their history and some of their best songs and some of their best work came out of the John Bush era. I mean, you, here you are saying this is your favorite album. I, I would argue all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to the, the music and the songwriting as well. I mean, th- this uh, we, we talked before about length of albums. This album is 46 minutes. So that's, re- that's you know, 10 songs, relatively short. There are only two songs over five minutes. None of them are over five and a half minutes. And yet the songwriting is tremendous. There is, there, nothing is wasted. There's not a single unnecessary chord, drum, vocal line, even the solos, which is mostly a revolving door of guest guitarists. They're short, they're punchy. They, you know, get in, smack you around the face and then get out again. The whole album, this is one of the reasons I do love it, is a real, just, it just kicks down the door, pummels you and then leaves out the window, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's a really raw sounding album as well. It sounds, it almost sounds like you're watching a gig or maybe, you know, watching the band jam in the studio. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound at all over-processed or overdubbed in any way. No, I agree. I think there's only one song and I made a note on it where I, I felt like they tried a couple things that didn't work in, in that particular song. But you absolutely, overall, one of the things that I love the most about this album is the raw sound. It's very industrial too. Like they, they, you can see the influences of the day that were sort of affecting them as they made this album. You know, the, the, the sort of scraping, you know, notes and chords that they're playing, the, the, the sound that they're getting out of the guitars, um, a lot of the background, you know, sounds that they're bringing out of the guitars during certain songs and things like that. And just that underproduced sort of feel, it feels like a garage band album, which I think again, for older, heavy metal fans is very appealing you know i if i have to juggle between the two i'm a fan of the you know rawer sounding albums than the overproduced albums and this one is definitely one that it contributes to that energy because it feels like they're all in the same room and in some songs clearly they are as yeah. you you know sort of listen to them but i would i would say for anybody before i forget who um wants to hear an amazing album from anthrax with a ton of energy they put out an album called the greater of two evils and what it was was they had a bunch of people come into the studio and they re-recorded some of the belladonna era songs and turban era songs with john bush and they did it all together in the same room and so it was over a period of a few days i think and so it was basically them just jamming together in the studio and oh, playing wow. these songs together as they would in a live gig. And the energy on that album, that is also one of my favorite Anthrax albums ever. And again, it's it's sort of reissues, but it's him revisiting some of the Belladonna era stuff. He does a fantastic job with it, but the energy on that album is just amazing. And I do feel like that's something that John Bush brought to these guys, is that feeling of 
that just that fire from the from the lead singer position yes. you know that 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 energy and he was someone who had this commanding presence on stage i've seen them at least four times four times i could i found tickets for four shows that i went to three of them were the john bush era uh anthrax so i love that you keep your tickets <laughs> well i do and, and you know what's sad now because uh two things that are sad about that one is i don't have all of them but i have some of the best ones um two is that i looked back and saw that the last time i saw anthrax in concert was in 2004 i would have said wow. it was probably three years ago it was 2004 um i saw them in 91 2000, 2003, and 2004, and we can talk about the set list later, but um, John Bush was always, there was a night I saw him in a very small venue where he was sick, and you would never have known it because he just came out and killed it. It was actually Scott Ian that was talking later in the show about how he was basically battling the flu, and he was out there just absolutely tearing it up, and uh, yeah, he brought a great energy live, and you feel that. He's one of those guys that translates very well from live to you know, studio and studio yeah. to live. What you see and hear from him on the record is what you see and hear from him on stage. And that is not true of Joey Belladonna. He is much better in the studio than he is, um, you know, live, especially nowadays. But Bush, I mean, what you see is what you get all around with him. And I think fire's a really good, I'm glad you said that. That's a really good way of describing Bush's style. And just the way he sings, he sounds like he's on fire. He's, you know, got that fire erupting from his vocal cords. Um, he sounds like he sings wrong because he, like, uh, he sounds, he sounds to like me, he shouldn't have a voice. He sounds like yes. his voice should have blown out within like a year of singing. He like sings this. from his throat. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't sing from 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 down low, and you know, in his gut, he sings from his throat. And and as someone who also does that when I'm belting out tunes in the car, I can only <laughs> sing for fifteen or twenty minutes yeah. before I've completely blown out my voice. On this album in particular, his voice sounds like at any second he's going to lose it completely. Like his his voice is constantly on the edge of blown, being blown out. Have you seen the size of the guy's neck? <laughs> it's like maybe he's just built differently oh, yeah. to the rest of us. <laughs> It looks like all he does is do, do does like shoulders at the gym because his <laughs> neck just is you know like that's all yes. he does. There's no legs, no no sit ups, no no. He just, it's just all shoulders at the gym. He is all shoulders uh, and neck. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the singing comes from those muscles. Um, all right, before we go on to the songs, there's a couple of things about this that I want to mention. Firstly, you mentioned Dan Spitz having left after Sound of White Noise. To people who don't know, Dan Spitz left. And became a master watchmaker. World renowned. He studied in Switzerland for years to become one of the finest watchmakers in the world. Yep. It's amazing. There's a, I don't even know what magazine, maybe it was the Atlantic or something, but there's a whole story about this. Look it up. It's crazy. He literally just went, became a hermit for several years, went to Switzerland and became one of the world's best watchmakers. What on earth is that about? And if it's the same article that I'm thinking of, he looks like a hermit when they see, like oh, he's yeah. got a big long beard and everything. Like he does, yeah. he looks like he's hidden yeah. away in a cave he, and just he, learned how to make watches. But yes. he even designed and patented his own watchmaker's uh, workbench, which he yep. sells. He like patented it and sells the design because it's like handcrafted to be exactly what a watchmaker. So it's just amazing. Like, why would you do that? Yes, which is the exact opposite of most stories, which is, you know, guitarist leave band, leaves band, has pissed through all of his money, and is, you know, ends up just... Uh, and he's now sleeping in a doorway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. This guy went and became a world-renowned watchmaker. It was almost like, okay, yeah, I had fun playing guitar for a little while, now I'm going to go do something that will just 
blow people's minds. Right, and repair watches worth like half a million dollars. Uh-huh. And so. The guy's probably earning more money now than he ever did as a musician. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yep. <laughs> um, Walmart refused to stock this album because there is a guy with his naked ass out on the cover. Yep. That's a, like nothing else, just, you know, a bloke with no clothes on with his back to him so you can see his bum. I mean, doesn't that just say everything about Walmart in the mid nineties? Just fuck off. <laughs> yep. He, and, and yeah. And, and a big ball of rolled up cars, you know, in a junkyard, basically, you know, right next to him. But yeah, that, that was, that yeah, was that's it. He's that, not even that big on the cover, is he? And to show you how crappily the uh, album was marketed, being banned by Walmart should have been something from a PR standpoint that you could capitalize on and really sure. get a yeah. lot of buzz going about the album. Instead, it was just like another log on the fire of, you know, of this album not being at all well publicized. So it was, uh, and, it, and it, in, in terms of record sales, it sold, I think, just over 115,000 in the US. I'm not sure what it sold um, worldwide, but Sound of White Noise in the US had sold over 500,000. In yeah, the U.S., yeah. so uh, so it was down. a pretty steep drop off. Um, not the low point, uh, but it certainly was a pretty steep drop off for them. So, and they they definitely attribute that to the lack of marketing. Yeah. One other one final thing. Uh, you mentioned this when we were talking about uh, Slayer last time. Uh, this album does suffer from the mid '90s compact disc loudness wars yes. mastering problem. By about halfway through, you find yourself turning it up with every track because you've become completely inured to the volume because everything, and I say, I love this album, but the mastering, I would love to hear a properly mastered version from the original tapes because the mastering is dreadful. They just turned everything up to maximum. Yeah. And another place that I think it really suffers and it's a real shame um, is with Charlie Benante's drumming. He is without a doubt, like I would put him second only to Dave Lombardo. It, it, in in terms of the big four drummers of every drummer that's ever been in any one of those bands, he is a close second to me to to Dave Lombardo. He is amazingly talented, and if you listen to albums like uh, "We've Come for You All," I mean, you just, he's just putting on a clinic on every freaking song. His drumming is more straight ahead on this album because this album is more straight ahead. I think um, in terms of the types of riffs that they're using, it's really just meant to be a very straight ahead, heavy album. And in that way, he's he's not doing a lot of super interesting things, you know, behind the drum kit. But like his bass drum sounds very flat, and so yeah, I agree with you. The way the production on this album, it sort of flattens everything out or or cuts it off because of that loudness wars thing and um and it doesn't have the bottom that right i think yeah. would have made this album even heavier the guitar Absolutely. sounds super heavy but if it lacks a bottom yeah and sure. um i mean charlie like dave lombardo was a pioneer of things like the double bass technique that we now take for granted in metal but you know those two guys really pushed the envelope with what double bass drumming could could be in metal and I think unlike um, Dave Lombardo, the other thing that Anthrax brought to the table was a, a very sort of hip-hop flavor as well. And so in whereas Dave Lombardo uh, is a guy that uses the whole kit, you know, we talked about that. Charlie Bonante uses the entire kit as well. But some of the beats that he um, puts down on some of these songs, and you hear some of that... Um, American Pompeii is one of the songs that you hear that in, but you hear these sort of uh, bouncing sort of hip hop beats that he'll mm. he'll institute as well. 
um, that I think is a staple of Anthrax. So they did retain some of the stuff from the Joey Belladonna era because you know Anthrax are the New York boys in in the California crew. You know yep. all of the other big four are are definitely um, more California based, but Anthrax was was straight up New York City, and you feel that in their music and their style was always different than those other three bands. And so uh, Charlie's drumming, I think, was a huge part of that. Yeah, the only one of the big four to have recorded uh, to have cut a record with Public Enemy as well. Remember, absolutely, and and that shows you the the sort of um, connection to to the New York scene that they had, and also um, you know where they were willing to go with their music, where where they were never as concerned about how it fit in with everybody else. You know, they were there. Yeah. So in that way, they were like Slayer in that. But as whereas Slayer had sort of one sound that they were going to stick to come hell or high water, I think Anthrax was like, we're going to do what, you know, what we feel. And whether that fits into somebody's, you know, cookie cutter idea of us or not, um, you know, that really doesn't matter to us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what it's again, one of the reasons that I love the whole John Bush era, but especially this album. Um, so, oh, all right, let's get to the album then. So, sure. First track, I mean, the very opening, uh, first track, Random Acts of Senseless Violence, and just the, the, the first, like, 10 seconds that... so aggressive like within 10 seconds you just know what kind of an album you're in for you're like whoa this is this is not 1980s you know this is not the not man <laughs> yeah although is it uh it's not this song it's um might be riding shotgun where they where they throw a couple knots in there but uh yeah so so with random acts of senseless violence that that intro that you're talking about is one that they repeat on almost every song through this album not in the same exact way but there's a very much a every song has sort of a sort of growling um revving intro to it on this album where they're they're sort of it's almost like they're jumping into the main rhythm of the song yeah. and so this in that way this is a good a very good indicator and a well chosen first track because it gives you a very good idea of what the rest of the album is going to sound like and so it, it sort of sets the tone for everything and really establishes this is what you're getting from this album yeah it's a great first track it, it, because yeah it makes a real statement like you know you thought well and bush as well makes a real statement on this track this you know this is kind of a quintessential bush era track for me um you know it's like you thought you knew what we could do on white noise and what we sounded like, but that wasn't half of it. So just sit down, shut up and listen, you know? In the first minute of this song, right up to the first chorus, there are only two chords played. 
<laughs> it's like different rhythms, but only two chords played for the entire first minute. And yet you don't, you know, unless you're sort of analyzing it like I did listening to it in prep for the show, it just grabs you it, like, boom, here we go. We are not stopping. Get out the fucking way. And I love that about and it. And again, y- you hit on something that is a that is a trend on this album. This album is much more simplified from a riff writing standpoint. And and I think um, to go back to what we talked about before the before we started getting into the tracks, um, they didn't have a lead guitarist. So y- you... I think it shows on this album. There's two things that show on this album from the guitar standpoint. One is they didn't have a lead guitarist, so I think things are very very straight ahead in terms of the types of riffs that you're going to see, and they sort of build songs around very simple riffs, but they they do other things within the song to make them heavy um, in each individual song. And then the same thing with the solos. You know, you're you're seeing this revolving door of guitarists, um, and and one in particular, which we'll talk about, you can absolutely pick out when you hear him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it is like, yep this this may not be this may not have a, a ridiculous level of complexity, but we are going to punch you in the face with how heavy this album is, and that's what they do, um, you know, coming right out. And even tricks like in this first album when he's saying, um, "I see something wrong, and I fix it with my hands." As you get that chorus towards the end of the song, there's one part where they play the notes like half as slow. Like yep. he drags yep. it, and yep. that's a really cool. You don't hear that a lot. That's a really cool sort of way to emphasize what you're expecting from the song, but also play with that a little bit, but also really emphasize how heavy this song is. Yeah, and and the end of it is. I mean, that that's what leads back into the final chorus, and the end is absolutely brutal. Going okay, quick aside about dynamics, which I'm always banging on about. I know, but this is a great example. And it ties back to what you were just saying about, you know, this is not musically complex. The riffs are much less complex in terms of actual notes than probably any Anthrax album, even any of the other Bush era albums. But it is all about rhythm. Um, and you see, before I would have assumed that's because Charlie was writing everything. But now I know that Charlie writes everything anyway. So I don't know. But th- right. there are very, very <laughs> exactly. few notes, but everything is just so tight. And it's all about the rhythm of the riff and how it ties in with the drums. And you've got to do that because if you're going to only play like three chords, you know, for like most of the album's riffs, you've got to have great dynamics to keep things interesting. You've got to have a few solos, as you mentioned on the when we were talking about Santanga, and they have that, you know, mostly with guests. But it is such a dynamic album. You, unless you're sort of really paying attention, you don't even notice that a lot of the time you're listening to the same chord, just played differently and with different timing. And that is great dynamics. That's one of the reasons one of the modern bands that I love is the Defiled. And they totally get that. They do that a lot, like very, very few chords, but the dynamics and the timing and the way they play it are so interesting that, you know, you just want to bang your head. And that's exactly what this album does for me. Well, and this also in terms of those dynamics, like it in some bands, you don't have enough strong pieces to hold up a song with different pieces. And so it's one thing, it's either the guitar or it's the drummer or it's whatever. What's nice about what John Bush brings to this band is that you have his lyrics, which I think alone 
hold up some of the songs, whether you like the rhythm or don't like the rhythm. What he's saying lyrically is something that you're interested in and, and is resonating with you and that that can hold up the song. You've got the these heavy, heavy riffs that even though they're not overly complex are enough to grab you on some of these songs because they're such a good hook and they'll carry you through. You've always can fall back on Charlie's drumming, you know, and, and Frank, I think, doesn't get enough credit as a bass player um, in this band sometimes and the production is not great as we mentioned there's not a good uh, bottom end on this album but he does some interesting stuff as well so because they have this because they have enough pieces there that can all sort of pull their own weight you can let different ones come to the forefront and let different ones hold up certain songs whereas not every band has the luxury of doing that and so that's that's one of the nice things about what anthrax sort of brings to the table is they're they're versatile that way yeah, I mean, they were essentially a four-piece on this album. Um, and yeah. it kind of, you know, as you said, there are no, again, no wasted parts. You know, everybody, as you say, is pulling their weight and contributing. There's nothing, there's no dead weight no. on it. And the solo shreds on this uh, on this particular song. I, it, it's not yes. long, but there's some good uh, use of the whammy bar in there. There's a lot of good bends in there, and there's just some good old-fashioned shredding. So it's, uh, and it fits the energy of the song well. I don't think any of the solos on this album are especially long, really. Are oh, they? No, you know, they're, they're not. They're super short. Yeah. Um, so next track, Fueled. straight into it again like no messing no slowing down um and this highlights something that they did a lot of on this album more so than even on sound of white noise which was and this is part of modernizing their sound non-muted chords like they're in yep. there there's plenty of like chugging but and that's an important part of many of the songs but there is a lot of you know just open ringing power chords on this album like going right the way through to keep that sort of wall of noise feeling and i know that's something that turned a lot of old school thrash fans off yeah i i i think you're right about that but i again i feel like from an energy standpoint with this song it has that great um you know sort of building right into you know it just sort of it feels like jumping it almost feels like you're you're jumping into each one of these songs you know like like physically and you jump into this one this song includes something that was sort of a staple of anthrax and especially if you've seen them live they their songs were famous for there was a particular part of the song that was meant for you to be moshing to and (laughs) (laughs) that was sort of a staple of the formula that anthrax was well known for through the belladonna era it's not it wasn't used as much during the bush era but where it was used i thought it was very effective and this is a song where there's very clearly a this is the part that you're supposed to lose your mind and mosh to right now and it's very heavy and it's just a great uh it's a great mosh part it it has a fantastic mid-late breakdown as well here again 
remember, this album is from 1995. Right. It is like, it's 20 years old, and it's like 15 years ahead of its time. The breakdown in this track sounds so modern. And I, you know, I'm not saying that necessarily most modern bands have even heard this album, because they probably haven't, frankly. It's not that easy to find these days. But... What an influence. Like, oh my God, you listen to it and you're like, well, this could be something that's released now. It's incredible. Yeah, great song. One of my favorite uh, songs on the album, for sure. King Size. Nothing to fear but fear itself. Yeah, oh, this is this, this, this is a song where I feel like uh, the lyrics are what carry this song for me. Um, minimum effort, maximum gain. That you know, there's just some great lines in this. Yeah. I'd uh, never sell in, my soul for something that's free. Yes, exactly. So again, and that's to me, that's all John Bush. You know that that's that's him. Um, that this is these are his mantras that he's sort of throwing out there and his sort of life lessons that I appreciate even with the stuff he does with Armored Saint too. I really appreciate that stuff. And again, very straight ahead tune, but um, heavy, moving, and great lyrics. To me, the lyrics are the thing that carries this tune. Well, and it's a thousand miles an hour again, like no slowing down, no respite, you know, bush screaming at the top of his lungs. Um, There are some interesting things though. You've got that rolling snare from Charlie in the kind of post chorus, which is just odd. You don't hear a lot of that on metal albums, but you know, it works. And Charlie being a drummer, you'd, you know, he'd know that it's going to work. Talking about the loops, this song sounds, always sounds really defiant to me. And I think a lot of that is because of the lyrics. Not, I mean, musically it has that sound, but lyrically it sounds really defined. Almost like metal bands didn't used to, before the the rap influence really took hold in the early two thousands. Metal bands didn't do a lot of songs going like "We're great, we are." <laughs> they right. do a lot of it now. You know, that's something that hip hop does loads of. But it was never really a thing in metal. You had Pantera did it a bit, and I suppose Man of War. Okay, you know, but they're they're a whole nother universe. Right. That's a um, whole nother. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't something that especially mainstream thrash bands, if you like, did. Um, but this song really feels like it. it is them saying, fuck you. We are better than everyone else. And this is why. Um, and I wonder, maybe Pantera were an influence. I mean, this is one of the tracks where Dimebag Daryl does the guitar solo. And you're right. You can tell yes. as soon as it starts, you're like, wow, that sounds familiar. <laughs> doesn't his i mean it makes me want to do a pantera episode like immediately in time all in good time <laughs> and we will and we will we'll probably argue about which one that we'll do but uh but yeah i mean i i love what he brings and he he's played he played on uh we've come for you all as well he he contributed yeah. some stuff to that so uh totally you realize what an amazing talent dimebag was because he just has a signature sound as soon as he comes in you're like oh here we go and this was only one year after Far Beyond Driven. So you have to assume that there's kind of, you know, there will be, they're all influencing one another at this point. Sure. But something else that ties into that, um, the kind of bragging song, you missed a bit. You're right. 
what the line is nothing to fear but fear itself but then after it the complete line is nothing to fear but fear itself and me and i love that that little addition just right. makes the whole line for me and that i hope that that's john bush because i love that i i have to assume that it is i mean because only because it fits so well with the what you know to be his writing you know what i mean it certainly feels like he that's a him line uh, riding shotgun the ne- the other track that uh dimebag guests on on this album And uh, once again, are we slowing down yet? No. (laughs) Love, love, love this song. For me, this is, it's hard to pick a favorite, but this is without a doubt one of my absolute favorites. I love the bouncing riff. Um, I love the drum beat. I love the way that it, you know, it starts off with a, you know, just a, just a guitar whine and then you jump right into it and there's some great sort of, uh, you know, fills in the background and stuff like that. Um, and then the drum beat carries the, the verses, Yeah, you know, um, just great baseline. This is a place in this album where you actually can hear a baseline from Frank that is interesting and different. And, and it's got this sort of, uh, just this bouncing nature to it. And Dimebag solo is freaking awesome on this song. So the, the, this song to me is the total package for sure. Yeah. It's not quite my favorite on the album, but as I say, I love the whole album. So, but yeah, I love that that bending guitar note uh, that comes back down, like in the pre-chorus, that comes back down and hits yep. the chord, build in tension, and then the chorus itself is one massive tension release. Everything going at a million miles an hour, um, yep. and the ending of this as well is relentless, just yep. pounding and pounding and pounding towards the end. But <laughs> unlike. <clears throat> some of the songs on Santanga, it does not outstay its welcome. Like the end is just the same four bars repeated over and over, but only for about 30 seconds, you know, not so long that you're tired of it by the end. And again, go back to what you said earlier, you know, these songs are four minutes long and there's a couple that creep over five. And one of them is basically the ballad on the album. So uh, to me, especially on an album where you're maybe taking some risks and you're doing something a little bit different, like that's a golden rule. It, it's, it should be a golden rule for everybody. And it speaks to, you know, um, when a band gets overindulgent, don't overstay your welcome. You know, if the song might not be for me, but if you move to the next song quickly enough, then you haven't lost me on the album. It's when you linger too long that you start losing people and they don't want to listen to the rest of the album. And, and you know, as I said before, I give every album at least three full listens before I start to formulate an opinion about it. Don't make it difficult for me to get through your album. Because <laughs> yeah. if, if, I, if I'm having trouble making it through the first listen through of this album, then uh, then I'm already starting, you know, to you're losing me a little bit. And, and 
it, it's it there there's this sort of thing the the mid album dip and I think this one suffers a tiny bit from it as well in a certain point but it's tough to hold up the middle of that album it is and and to keep people you know hooked all the way through and I think one of the things that Anthrax tried to do with this album was said well we'll just keep the energy level up the whole way through and that and then that way there's no place for people to sort of jump off you know the the train because we're just gonna we're gonna keep moving too fast for them. You're absolutely right. That's exactly it. There's no, there's no sort of jumping off point on this album. Like even you, right? There's no exit from this album. Um, but yeah, riding, riding shotgun, super great tune. One, one that I would absolutely point to if people said, "Well, this, you know, that album all sounds the same." Because the criticism on this album is that it is the grunge influenced Anthrax album. That it all the songs sound the same is the criticism against this album. That it is made uh, the songs are all shorter because there was an attempt to be more radio friendly. Um, those are the sort of the superficial criticisms of this album. If you go out and read reviews that were written both at the time and people who are sort of looking back at the '90s and 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 looking at what all the major bands did and when they sort of got influenced by what was happening at the time and stuff like that. And to me, a lot of that stuff speaks to people um, not following my golden rule of giving it three listens. They're they're listening to it and making a judgment without digging into some of these songs. But um, but that's sort of the the step back criticism of this album is that it's it's very vanilla and it's very um, you know sort of generic in in its approach and i think that it, it, what that says to me more than anything is that this is an album that you need to give a few listens to and and you start to see how these songs differentiate themselves and and sort of what they're doing differently and so yeah i don't know how anybody could take could seriously listen to this album and say that i mean and riding shotgun is a great example of you know you would not find this on a Soundgarden album. You would not find this on an Alice in Chains album. You certainly wouldn't find it on a flipping Pearl Jam album, you know? <laughs> but you know what it is? It's this notion that um, old school metal fans, you know, and, and here in the States when we're talking about old school, you know, these big four that that everybody loved, it's this notion of like, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. It, it, there's, there's this, there was such a, a hatred of what people perceived that grunge did to the music scene and how it basically blew up their bands. Like we talked about, you've got Anthrax coming off Persistence of Time. You got Megadeth coming off Rust in Peace. You've got Slayer coming off Seasons in the Abyss. These bands, in many fans' minds, were reaching their pinnacle at that point in time. And then Grunge came in like a grenade and just blew it all up. And so, you know, there was this backlash from people who were firmly entrenched in the scene at that point in time that they vehemently hated everything that grunge stood for and everything that it did to their music scene at the time. And so anytime that there was a perception that some of that stuff was leaking into what the bands that they grew up listening to, there was a visceral reaction to that. And I think Anthrax definitely felt that um, because people were like, oh, so you're just jumping on the grunge trend now. You're following that. And so, as you just said, someone who was familiar with that genre and also um, had you know, had a good working knowledge of what that music was would be able to look at what Anthrax is doing on this album and say, well, that's not actually true. Sure, maybe they're picking up some influences, but as you just said, you're not going to hear this song on a Soundgarden album, or you're not going to hear this song from Pearl Jam or from any of those bands. No. Um, but I think just the the knee-jerk reaction of some of the you know longtime fans was just that oh, it sounds like that it sounds like that stuff I don't like it I don't like it why did they do that get away from that and and that's what the backlash that they received 
Yeah, well, or it doesn't sound exactly like this band did 10 years ago. Yes. Therefore, I'm going to assume that it sounds like the stuff that's popular now. Exactly, yes. Now, perpetual motion. But I never If this if this album had come out seven or eight years before, I would have said, much like we did with Slayer, oh, this is the last track on side one. And it does kind of feel like that. It feels like the last track on the side of an album. But in ninety-five, everybody was onto CD by this point. For you know, we'd already gone through the death of vinyl and then the backlash against the death of vinyl from uh, Pearl Jam, funnily enough. Um, so you know, I don't think there was any consideration of that. But when you realise that this would normally be the last track inside one, it does kind of fit. It's a bit weird. Yeah, and this this is one of the few songs on the album that really doesn't do anything for me. Um, I'm not a fan of the opening riff of this song, and so oh wow, it it's not. Uh, I don't think it's a throwaway tune. It just doesn't it doesn't hold up to the rest of them for me, especially because when you look at the two songs that it's sandwiched between. Riding Shotgun, fantastic. And then we'll talk about In His Own in a minute, which freaking amazing. So it's, and it may just be that that's a tough spot to be sandwiched in between. But yeah, coming out of Riding Shotgun, I didn't feel like this took the baton and moved it forward. I felt like it was, you know, at best treading water and at worst maybe taking a step back from, from what we've established so far with this album. Oh man, I disagree. I, this is one of my favorite tracks on the album. I love this one. Um, it's again, it doesn't slow down. This whole like for the first five tracks, they're all incredibly just full straight steam ahead, fast. Um, and musically, I love it because it's got those weird downward rolling chords, both in the verse and the chorus, which are really you know just odd enough and unexpected enough to make it really stand out. And uh, this feels like a real showcase for John Bush. Um, the lyrically, it feels almost like another brag track, almost. Um, but it's also, you know, I noticed during the John Bush uh-huh. era, they did quite a few tracks that seem to be about like not holding people up to be perfect heroes and sort of uh, maybe even warning other bands like, don't think too highly of yourself. You know, don't sort of let your ego get the better of you. We all put our pants on one leg at a time um and they make for great lyrics and great songs and i think the lyrics in this are really good the chorus especially diamonds in my eyes oceans full of pride can't you say i'm only human i love that and then the you know perpetual motion and the say those downward riff on the guitars just to me that's i love this track uh, and one other thing it does this really showcases bush's singing style where he almost hollers like it's not quite tuneless, but he's got this tone where it sounds like he's just like hollering is the best description I can think of a line rather than sing it, you know? 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. He ha- he has this sort of spoken word feel to some of his uh, style that I think in some ways makes people not give him enough credit for his range. But um, but yeah, I agree with that, and I- and I do feel like that's a good. Um, there there are good lyrics in this song. He he's got incredible range. Yeah, that's that's absurd. But if people think John Bush hasn't got range, they you know I don't know what to tell them. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Oh, I totally agree. But but yeah, I think certain songs showcase that better than others. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you do. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, I will fight anyone who says John Bush doesn't have range. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, like for me, best singer of any of the big four that they've ever had, for sure. Yeah. And certainly the closest to a proper singer of any of them as well. <laughs> Correct. And and you, and you could attribute that to the history of how these guys became singers, you know, pretty much out of necessity in a lot of cases. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, so, okay, in a zone. that again feels almost like the start of a new feels like you've turned over the album doesn't it even though as i say you know we're long past the vinyl era by this stage but that lovely fade in intro uh and then once again hits a single chord with the rhythm holding it together well and the bass the bait the one note on the bass yeah boom like just uh this song, it to me, oh, such a great song. The build up, the you know, just the chugging along, and the when you when Charlie's drums kick in, like it's just like you are freaking done for. This song is just going to kick your ass. And I think Bush's style on this one, again, it's uh, it's someone who's fighting, almost like holding in this energy that gets let go at certain points during the song. It's just like you know. Uh, I'm wearing out my skin. I'm under pressure. You know, like just this, this someone who's about to freaking lose it. Yeah. I, I also musically, I love that sort of staggering uh, chug at the end of the verse lines. I think it's the end of every second line of the verse where it just sort of almost goes out of time, like dun, 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 and then back in, you know, yes, and almost the, loses And it. that scraping, that the scraping way that that, you know, that exclamation is played, you know, it's, it sounds very metallic. It sounds very Pantera. Yes. Yes. Which is another reason why, as I say, I do wonder, you know, how much of an influence they in turn may have had on uh, Anthrax during this era and all for the good, in my opinion. You got to think that Dime was listening to what they were doing, you know, that they were bouncing Mm. stuff off of them saying, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I could see him saying like, why don't you play that exclamation point like this? And they were like, oh, crap, that sounds freaking 10 times better. So like, yeah. I could totally see that sort of back and forth you know, feedback going on. But uh, my favorite part of this song is when they come out of the guitar solo and you've got that one note that's just carrying you as the chuggings in the background and the way the song comes back in is just fierce. It's it's yeah. one of those uh, tingle moments where you know the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you just want to 
you know, bang your head until it falls off. Like just really, <laughs> really fierce. It's frenetic. Yes. It, it, the, the whole, yeah, the end of the final, like 20 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever, this song are just glorious because it is just absolute energy and chaos and everything like thundering towards the end. Yeah. Just a, just a, a freaking awesome song. Love this song. Uh, okay. And nothing. I refer to this song as the radio single that I don't like. <laughs> this, well, and this was the single. Uh, there were only yeah, two singles on this good, album. It was Fueled and this, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan of this song. This, this, is, uh, this is when I feel like we suffer the mid, mid to late album dip right here. This song in American Pompeii, I feel like, um, not that I dislike either one of them, but again, I feel like we stumble a little bit here and and I could do without this song. There's there's really not much in this song that makes me that stands out ah, to me. Interesting. Now I I like this song a lot. Um we do slow down a bit. I mean it it you know it's not my dying bride or anything, but it is slower than the rest of the album. But it's it's not a ballad. It's not like this is some kind of light ballad. You've got Charlie rolling on like sort of tribal style toms throughout the pre-chorus. You've got harmonic scratches in the verse. You've got feedback uh-huh. wailing under the vocals. You've even got amp hum and squeal at the end of the solo. You've got John Bush hollering again. There's, you know, the elements of this song are not radio friendly, and yet they package it up into something that, yes, is probably the easiest song to sing along to on the album. No question. Yeah, this is the closest thing to a normal rock track, but it is pretty damn far from mainstream. Uh, it, to, this song strikes me as the song that they think would be would work. That that maybe not them, but like that the producer or the record company. This strikes me as a song that feels a little bit forced and feels like that. This is the one that we can market. You know, this is the one that we can sort of build uh, some radio play around. This is what the kids are listening to these days. And so <laughs> it, it to me, it just doesn't. It doesn't really. Uh, it doesn't really work for me. Again, it's not. I don't skip this song when I play through the album, and to me, that that's when I know I, I have nothing for a song is when I'll when I'll skip through it. But um, I'm waiting to get to the next song as I listen to yeah. this song. I, I do just want to point out I, this has one of the best couplets I think on the album uh, of lyrics: "You, the tallest soul with the shortest self-esteem, painted as the victim." <laughs> yep. I just that is so. Oh, that's poetry. That is lovely. I I love that. <laughs> well, and that goes to the whole idea that even on a song that doesn't necessarily work for me, you've got some of the John Bush's lyrics that I think can hold things up. And so there, in almost every song that he writes the lyrics to, there is something for you to grab onto that you can identify with. And and you know, I feel like he's I feel like he's always had like this old soul, and he always has these uh, you know pearls of wisdom that he's dropping in in the songs <laughs> that he writes. And so there's always something to grab onto and be like, yeah, that makes they're just. Uh, concepts that jump out in your mind, you know? Okay, now, American Pompeii. 
Now, this is going to be interesting because you you just said that uh, Nothing and American Pompeii are the two tracks that you think are a low point on the album. I really like Nothing, but American Pompeii, I am less keen on. Again, it's, you know, I don't skip it. I love the whole album. But this and actually the next song for me, Drop the Ball, to, for me are my sort of two low points on the album. Uh, I could see that. I like Drop the Ball a little bit better, but uh, for American Pompeii, um, I think uh, one of the lyrics that stands out for me that I think applies to this these two songs together is it's starting to lose me like a four-hour movie that I've already seen. There, there. <laughs> this is where this is where I feel like um, the simplicity of the riffs, if you're not doing other stuff in the song to make it more interesting is where you can start to lose people because again right. you're not, each song in and of itself is not individually complex in in the riffs that they're playing here so american pompeii i don't care for the main rhythm um you know it's it's a little too slow it's not really interesting to me um I do think there's a cool mosh part in this song, which I think is that that sort of bounding, you know, sort of riff. But this was the song where I said, remember they they do some weird things with the production. It's almost like got these poppy sound effects in the background in the middle of the song, and I don't think that that works well at all. It's almost like they they didn't know what to try to spice this song up a little bit when they were playing it. So they threw in this this sort of you know these background sort of weird um, exactly production noises. Mean. And it's and I, I and it took me a few times because I listened to this three or four times this week in getting ready for the show. But I, it was last night when I was listening to it, and it's a great workout album, by the way. I was doing, I was exercising, and I was listening <laughs> to it. And when I got to this part, and I'm like, "What are they doing with this song?" Like, and that's when it kind of was like, "Oh, it." I could see them sitting in the studio and being like, "I don't know, man. Like, this song like needs something. Like, okay, well, why don't we try this?" And 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 you know, you're allowed to have a song or two on an album that doesn't work as well as the other songs. And that's still considered to be, in my mind, a great album. So they're not all going to be, you know, future Hall of Fame hits. And and this one here, I just think was a little, um, was not very interesting. And they tried to spice it up in a couple of different ways that, that didn't necessarily work for me. Although um, it's not a total throwaway song because of that mosh part in the middle. Like you can see them playing that live and people getting really pumped up for that. So, yeah. I think Charlie's drums kind of hold this whole track together, actually. His um, kick yeah. drum work on this track is really good and keeps the whole thing going. As I, Yeah, I think that ties it all together. And I also have a note about, yeah, the breakdown, the bouncing. Dun, 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 dun. That bridge breakdown is awesome. A real, like, bouncing, as you say, like, that's a mosh moment. Yep. But <laughs> the very next thing I've got in my notes is, but I could do without the bongos. <laughs> yeah and again it's this it's like okay well what can we do to sp and i get it american pompeii so sure maybe that conceptually tries to fit with the song but um but it was an experiment that i didn't feel like quite worked um talking about guitar techs the solo on this one is by mike tempesta who used to be scott ian's guitar tech apparently isn't that amazing and it's yeah. a really good solo as well it's really short punchy in and out quick but you know interesting yeah and here's another thing that I appreciate about Anthrax, and and again, in here it's more out of necessity that they had to have sort of a revolving door of people coming in and helping out on the album. But you see that with a lot of their albums, where they they are totally cool with, you know, bringing somebody in, and if they want to do something cool or you know they need a particular part for a song or something, letting somebody do that or inviting somebody to do that. And I've always kind of liked that. It shows a. a 
you know, sort of an openness for them to do that. So I appreciate stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, drop the ball. Now it starts great. This starts with like those shrieking percussive guitars, kicks into a great riff. I mean, the, the whole album for me is just one great riff after another. But the track as a whole just just doesn't. Yeah, it's not. I mean, this basically, if I had to pick one, this is my least liked track on the album because it's just to me, it's not as striking as the rest of them. It's less unusual. It's a bit more standard, um, but it is still. A great track. I will still take this over just about anything by, well, many bands that I could name. So you know, like I'm, I really do love the whole album, but this, this to me feels like the one that you could probably lose, and maybe the album wouldn't suffer for it. Uh, this is an interesting song to me because I, f- I feel like it's kind of a, a Jekyll and Hyde song. There are parts of this song that I absolutely love, and there are parts that don't necessarily work for me. I love the way the song comes in. And the the sort of mosh part in this song is is a riff that is so heavy. I think it's the heaviest thing on this album, except for Tester, which is the next song. Right. Um, but it, but it just like when it dun 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 dun, dun, yep. dun like there's just such a, that's so heavy again. That it, Fifteen years ahead of their time, man. Yeah, it just feels like it's going to crush you. And so even though the song itself is not necessarily doing a lot of interesting stuff outside of that, that one part, you're like, holy shit, that's heavy. Like, just uh, that's just such a great, great heavy riff. Now, the solo, I think, is a kind of lackluster in the song. But um, but that one, just the way that riff turns over, like, just so, so freaking good. So um, that rescues this song for me. And, and uh you know, it just uh, it it makes it stand out to me. Yeah, that's definitely the most the best part of the song. Uh, you know, it would be a shame to to lose that certainly. But the rest of the song, as I say, I, I mean, you know, I still like it. I will still headbang to it and listen to it. And but it is the one that yeah, I kind of feel is the low point of the album. Which is interesting. The next song is the high point of right. the album. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, I wouldn't say the high point, but yeah, it's pretty fucking good. <laughs>
yeah, it's my, it's definitely my favorite tune on the album. And holy shit, is this song heavy? Like the voice box that Scott Ian is doing in the background, the the way that this song builds in, um, just like that's actually Charlie doing the squawk box. Oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, just yeah. freaking so. That that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the album, where where you know, like a lot of these songs have this sort of um, uh, rev up, sort of sort of build in, and the way that this one is, it, it sounds like you're, it sounds like you're stepping on a gas pedal and you're revving a car, and then it just kicks into, and it's just like such a heavy opening, and you're like, all right, I'm. I'm in for something brutal here. And so just the intro to this song is kick ass. Um, I love everything about this song. And when we talked before about how there's sort of a garage band feel or, or a, a sort of live in studio feel to this, this is the song that best exemplifies that because the foot stomps are being done by people in the studio. Yep. Yep. And you can hear Scott Ian talking about how it rules at the end of it, like just the effect of it and stuff like that. That I'm so glad they kept that in. I'm so glad you can hear him at the end of the song because this feels like a song that they're playing for their friends in the studio. Like, like they brought people in and said, dudes, wait till you freaking hear this song. And they start playing it. And they're like, okay, we want you to stomp your feet during this. And so it's just got this collaborative, like kick-ass, like this is why we love heavy metal. Um, I would put this song on for anybody who, you know, were like, why was, you know, why do you love heavy metal or what do you love about it? Or what, when you talk about the energy of heavy metal, like this is that song where I would be like, just freaking listen to this, man. Let it wash over you. It, those, those foot stomps are, they're they're just so freaking good and the way that the song ends with that to me is i felt like this song should be the closer on the album because i would have just left this album being like fuck yes that is so goddamn heavy like like that that's where i feel like th- this song is the standout like I, it would be such a great closer on this album okay well first of all uh I actually, if I was going to do that with a song on this album, like demonstrate to somebody, I would actually choose Random Acts of Senseless Violence. Um, but, you know, that's a taste thing. But yes, this is, this is what I mean about songs that feel like an ending. You, that opening riff with the rolling tums under it, and you know that you are in for something atmospheric, something that means something, you know? There is feedback washing all over the track, which I love. Um, you know, was it intentional? Was it just from Scott sitting there waiting to play something? Who knows? But it sounds great. The lyrics are great. Right. You know, I, I have no problem with fame. I can be every man because my friends never sell my name. Fucking love that. That is yep. great. And test your new model against the original. I mean, you know, if that's, oh, that's my favorite track. Yeah. It's like, come on, come on. You think you're hard enough, you know? And the end. Yeah. God, the, the squealing guitars, the riff speeds up. Charlie's going bonkers on the drums it sounds like a motorhead finish it sounds like what you get when you see motorhead live and you know the end just goes on for like l- almost longer than the song and then yeah ends with that stomp i i think i read somewhere that they had basically just got everybody in the studio stomping on the hard floor of the drum room uh yep. drum rooms normally have you know, a hard floor so they could just got everybody stomping in there um and i mean you could it's not even in time you can tell that it's you know <laughs> 
even with musicians. Right, it's just kick ass. Like everybody's yeah. just having a good time, and you and you can see like you you can picture like the people who are listening to them play like just stomping along with it and kind of getting more excited. And yeah. and they just you know when they got to the end of it, we're like, let's keep that take. You know, let's let's go with that, even if it's not perfectly in time or it works yeah. perfectly. Like let's just let's just keep the feel of that. It's such a great. I love this song. They're easily my favorite song in the album. I just love everything about it. Exactly because it is uh real it is raw so you know it uh yeah it just fits it absolutely fits and okay now this is going to be interesting i i bought this album literally like the day it came out that is the end of the album that's the end that's the last track interesting which of course is not the case on the copy that you have um but yeah, the version that I've got, maybe it was a European US thing, I don't know, but the version that I have Oh, now I need to find out. Yeah. Tester is the last track. Because yeah, what an ending, you know. <laughs> That's so interesting. It doesn't say anything about it on Wikipedia. I wonder. And it and the album that I had was not like the special edition or anything like that. I bought it when it came out. Um Wow, that is interesting. So that makes perfect sense to me, because here's my note on that song. Uh, might be the best song on this album. Totally out of place on this album. Those that was my two notes uh, about this song. Like, <laughs> right, should be the last track. Yeah. <laughs> Circumstance that I've been Leaving questions in my. Find the space that was left there An empty space I'd gladly share Yeah, like it like it's a it's a great song. Um lyrically, musically, it's uh it, I'm not opposed to a band like Anthrax again because they have a singer like John Bush trying a song like this and doing a song like this. I think that's fine. Um I would have put this song had I been tracking it myself, I would have probably put this song in the middle of the album so yeah. that it could be it could provide a bit of a reprieve and then be built back up out of, um, but to stick it on the end, that makes perfect sense because I kept thinking to myself, like this feels like one of those extra tracks that they put on an album when they remaster it. Like, Oh, here's, (laughs) here's the extra song that we, you know, didn't release or that we cut from the album or something like that. Um, but it's a fine song. It's a great song, but tester is a closer. And so that makes perfect sense to me that Tester is the closer on the copy of the album that you have. Now I need, so this will be good for our listeners. If anyone knows the reason for that, or if there was truly a uh, a conscious decision between different releases of this, that's good. Um, But I'm pretty sure I have the CD and I imported it into my music library. So this is my copy of the CD that has it on there. You know, sometimes when you buy it digitally, they'll throw extra tracks on, but I'm pretty sure this is what I ripped off my own CD. Um, so that's interesting. So what do you think of the song overall? Uh, it, I can take it or leave it. Um, I don't think John's voice is that suited to, to ballads. Um, you know, I think he is at his best when he is belting it out, not singing gently. 
So yeah, I, I can really sort of take or leave this song. It's not bad, but it's not really my kind of thing. And I agree that it, it would have fit so much better in the middle of the album where most metal bands do stick their ballads it must be said <laughs> well right because if people don't like it then uh you know you can build back out of it uh and then if you know if they do like it you're you still you're if they do like it, sort you've of lost a... yeah you've lost nothing but if they don't right. just wait a couple of minutes you know there'll be more along soon okay so overall you've said your favorite anthrax album yes without question absolutely i mean i do love um, volume eight, and we've come for you all, and even sound of white noise. I love all of the the Bush era Anthrax stuff, but this album has more energy than you know ten albums by their contemporaries, and especially by what the Big Four were producing at this time. I mean, let's not forget this is the time when Metallica are producing uh, Load, you know, and I like Load. You know, unlike Load, I I think Load's a great album. But it is not half the album that this is. Yeah, I think if people are throwing away around accusations of like, oh, this is the you know a sellout album or this is a radio album or something like that, I mean, you can look at what some of the other big four were doing and saying, uh, no, those are much better examples of yeah. you know a band <laughs> sort of bending to the times. And um, again, we talked about no guitar solos and Saint Anger and stuff like that. I mean, there there's clearer examples of people being influenced by what was currently happening in the music scene and on energy alone i agree with you i think this is an extremely strong album because of the energy that it brings and tester being a prime example of that energy if you want to throw it out there to you know anybody that hasn't heard this album um, my favorite anthrax album is from the bush era is still we've come for you all but i definitely enjoy this album have listened to it tons of times and anytime that it comes up in the rotation you know, we'll listen to it all the way through. Yeah. I mean, when this came out, I was working in a, a small design studio and there were three of us and we had a CD player in the corner of the studio. Um, and we would all bring CDs in and, you know, sort of, we'd take it in turns to play as you do, because we all had vastly different music tastes. Um, but this was one of the, this CD basically lived in that studio for like a long time while I was working there. And I would happily play it pretty much every day uh, and never get tired of it. And that is largely because of its energy, the amazing rhythms and riffs in there, the fact that it's not overly long, and John Bush's performance. Even on songs that clearly are not meant to be sing-along songs, you can sing along to them and you want to sing along to them because he is such a good vocalist and they are such good vocal lines and melodies and good lyrics that you just kind of want to anyway or you you know you do if you're a metal fan anyway my colleagues who were into um uh electronic ambient and uh you know sort of american folk weren't quite so keen to sing along <laughs> no no but they i'm sure that they were uh, mentally beaten down at some point and uh, <laughs> and and, it, and they were assimilated by this album so uh one of them did go out and buy a white zombie album eventually <laughs> well there you go uh, what's, I think the other thing too, in, and you mentioned that this came along in a time where you were working in the small design studio. I do feel like there are albums that come along at certain points in your life. And regardless of how everybody else feels about that album, they just click with you at a certain point in your life and get associated with a certain time in your life. And then they're mm-hmm. with you forever. You know, I was just, I was explaining to my kids cause I make them listen to eighties music constantly in the car when we're, when we're driving around, um, Def Leppard's Pyromania, when that came out. 
it happened to come out at a time where um, we were spending a good chunk of the summer at, at a beach that my family vacations at. And that was an album that I listened to hundreds of times in a row on my Walkman, just over and oh, over wow. and over again, over and over and over again, until it was just embedded in my DNA. And so that's one of those albums that you know people can take or leave that album. But for me, it just, it just really stuck. And it's not even my favorite Def Leppard album, but it's one of those albums that just um, was sort of imprinted on me because of the time that it came along and how much I listened to it. Yeah, I'd I'd leave it on the beach. I'm so sorry for you. Oh <laughs> uh, well, de- well, de- believe me, Def Leppard has plenty of throwaway <laughs> albums, but I I feel like those came uh, after that one. So, uh, but but we'll, we can explore that in a future episode. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, we'll get to that. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so looking back at the times that I've seen Anthrax in concert, I saw them at Clash of the Titans, and at that time it was uh, Joey Belladonna who was singing for the band. They had just come out with uh, Persistence of Time, and so there were no obviously Bush era songs that were in that lineup. Although uh, the highlights of that one. They played NFL, they played Cotton Amash, they played um, Keep It in the Family, Antisocial, and then I'm the Man and I Am the Law were the encores of that uh, show. So not a huge set because it was at Clash of the Titans with Slayer and uh, Megadeth as well. Um, I saw them in January of 2000 with John Bush at the Webster Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, and the only song they've ever played off of this album, Stomp 442, when I have seen them, is Fueled. That's the one that got sort of inserted into the live set. Oh, right. Uh, although they played off of Sound of White Noise, Room for One More, High Pro Glow, and Only. Right. Um, and they well, also- and I've got to imagine Fueled live is amazing. Amazing. And and it's a staple of, it was a staple of his time you know, in the band. So they would pretty much play that whenever I saw them. So I saw them in 2000. Um, they played Metal Thrashing Mad off the first album, so that was really good. I saw them in 2003 in Worcester, Massachusetts at the uh, Palladium with Motorhead, and they played uh, Fueled again there. They played Black Lodge, and they played a lot of uh, old stuff. Metal Thrashing Mad, which is a freaking amazing song off the first album, They he played a lot and, and did a really nice job with. Um, and then I saw them in September of 2004 with Dio, and so at that one, they were opening for Dio, and so they didn't have a full set, and they didn't play any of the songs off that album. But they played uh, "What Doesn't Die" off of "We've Come for You All." They played um, "Only." Um, they played "Safe Home" off of "We've Come for You All," and then they played uh, a bunch of their hits there too. So uh, one thing I will say about Anthrax is that Scott Ian is freaking awesome, and they're all awesome in concert. Like all of them are great. John Bush, what you hear on the album is what you get from him in concert. Even on the nights that he has the flu, he brings it a hundred percent. And they are a fantastic band to see live. Definitely worth catching if you get a chance to. And and Joey Belladonna, while his voice does not hold up as well live, um, they are absolutely worth seeing live. So if you get a chance to see them live, you you, you have to take it. Do they do Bush era songs with Joey Belladonna now? That's a great question because I haven't seen them since Joey Belladonna has been back in the band. And remember, when he came in to do worship music, that was an album that was written not even for him. Um, and so he didn't. He, he's he just came in and sang this. They oh, was re- that for Dan Nelson? Yeah, they re-recorded the vocals with Joey Belladonna. Now that album is awesome and definitely worth listening to, but they're working on a new album now with Joey Belladonna, which I think will be a, a truer test of, you know, what the new era of Anthrax is going to sound like. Yeah. So I, I would hope that they at least play some of their 
fan favorite Bush era songs when they I'm just go. wondering, I'm genuinely wondering if Joey's capable of singing those songs live. Well, they'd have to be pretty picky about, you know, like they couldn't just pick anyone out of there. Yeah, no, definitely not, no. And it would be interesting to see how, how he does with those. But yeah, I don't know if they do that. Um, I think that when they started doing the reunion stuff, people were so stoked to hear Belladonna era stuff that I think that's all they were playing. But it would be interesting to see right. what they're doing now. That's all now. they needed to play. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, just play all the old hits and uh, make us happy that we came out to see you. So I th- hopefully now that they're a little removed from that, maybe they would play some of that stuff. Um, because there's so much great stuff in the John Bush catalog of Anthrax that I would hate to see it get shelved just because Joey Belladonna's back. Because again, when Bush was singing for them, they certainly played Belladonna era songs. You know, most of their set list right, exactly, was songs yeah. that came from that era. And and he not only played them and sung them, he did it with the same energy that he brings to his own stuff. So he was always very respectful when I saw them live of everything that Anthrax had done before. And yeah. I would hope that Belladonna would be the same. Because again, this is a guy that was in the band for longer than he was. Yeah, but you know, but Joey was the original and, you know, well, or not the original, but the one that most people associate with Anthrax. So, then sure. I, uh, I'm sure there's politics <laughs> involved there. Oh, I'm sure there isn't hurt feelings and everything else and, and and you know, there's um there's a lot of guys that have sort of come through Anthrax over the years like uh uh, Rob Caggiano, who was the guitar player on uh, We've Come For You All, amazing guitar oh, player, yeah. but I felt like he never got the respect that uh, he deserved for his contribution to that band and what he brought to the table. And so um, so they're not good at that. They're not good at sort of <laughs> respecting, and they weren't good at that with Joey when Joey left. They were, they were, no, you that's know, kind of. Yeah. They kind of shat on him when he when he wasn't around. So you know, it's it's very much one of those things where again they they are the the Lars and James of uh, Anthrax. You know, Charlie and, and Scott. But um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to see something really cool too, before I forget, there was uh, I think it was Fuse TV did a series called Metal Head to Head, and what it was was they would take two musicians and put them in a room and have them talk process and influences and everything else oh wow and, and uh it's on youtube you can find it it's metal head to, te- to head and i i apologize to you now because you're going to fall down a rabbit hole of just ridiculously awesome music conversations and one of them was charlie bonante and ray luzier and so the two of them are just sitting there talking about i mean ray luzier who played in david lee roth who played in corn who was on um uh, this new album KXM from the, the Doug Pinnock, who was in Kings X and uh, uh, George Lynch from Dokken, they did an album, and it's nothing like you would think. It's amazing. But Luzier is a freaking amazing drummer, and him and Benante are sitting there talking about influences and stuff like that. So if you haven't checked that out, we can put a link to that in the show notes. It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's just candy for anybody that loves that type of music. I mean, it's so good. To- I, I am going to lose so much time now, thanks to you. <laughs> oh man, it's a great series, and I'm a bummed that it's over because the, it's just so. There's so many great um, musicians and conversations that happen there. Uh, Rudy Sarzo's in one. Um, George Lynch is in one. Oh, it's so good, so so good. So all right, um, so Anthrax Stomp Four Four Two, fantastic album. If you haven't heard it, you should go out and listen to it. Uh, good luck trying to find a copy of it. I guess your best bet these days is going to be streaming or iTunes or something because finding a physical copy, uh, I can't even imagine where you'd do that other than eBay, to be honest. Um, there's probably not that many copies even floating around in the world. 
Right, unless you have a, a shop that that sells used CDs and stuff like that, which uh, which if you don't, I feel bad for you. But that's where I get most of my stuff nowadays. I'm amazed that shops like that still exist. <laughs> we have one man. I'll take some pictures of it because it's it'd be perfect for for this show just to to you know celebrate what those guys are doing. But a place called Music Outlet is where I spent my entire high school career. I used to work at a grocery store, and they would cash your check for you at the grocery store when you got paid. So I was getting paid minimum wage, and I would work uh, when I was in high school. And a friend of mine and I were both huge metalheads, and so this music store at the time was located in the same plaza as our grocery store. So we would get paid on Thursdays. We would have our checks cashed at the store. We would walk over to Music Outlet and we would buy everything new that came out that week. And so I would buy half of it and he would buy the other half and then we would just make tapes for each other. And that's pretty much how during our high school year. So everything from like mid 80s to mid 90s, we had and we listened to and we got every week. And so that's where I built most of my music collection that sadly got lost over the years and I've tried to sort of build back over time. But yeah, that that's really what solidified. Spent every cent that you earned. <laughs> every cent that I earned. And that's how I became such a huge metalhead was that we actually had a music store and he would have a board on the wall when you walked in. And he would actually draw the logos of the actual bands. So you know how cool all the band logos are. He would have wow. all the logos and he would have the name of the new album and when it was coming out. And that board would go out for like six months. And he still to this day, the same guy who's got to be in his 60s now, his name is Gary, is running Music Outlet. It's in a different location. But you walk through that door and the first thing you see on the left-hand side on the wall is that giant whiteboard with all the band's names and what's coming out and when it's coming out. And pre-internet, it was pretty amazing because for those of us that were trying to figure out what was up and coming, you were reading magazines that were projecting months out at a time and stuff like that. But other than that, you didn't have a way of finding out who was coming out with new albums. This guy knew them all, and he put them all out there for everybody to see, and it was really, uh, really awesome. And it made me check out bands that I would ne- never otherwise have discovered. Right, so, yeah. Um, yeah. See, that's what Kerrang! did for me, and we'll, we can talk about that in a future uh, show. You've got to take some pictures of that. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. All right, we can't put it off any longer, much as I might want to. We have done three of the big four. We have one left. And Brian, it's your choice of album. So what are we going to talk about it next It is time? my choice. And I have two in mind. And so your familiarity with Megadeth and their catalog is sort of passing at best. Is that? It's it's terrible. Terrible. Yeah. I, okay. uh, I know. I've heard most of their early stuff at least once or twice, you know, back in the day. Sure. But it's not something I listen to ever out of choice. Um, I can just about hum the chorus to sweating bullets and the main riff from uh-huh. anger 18. And that's, that's basically about it. Uh, and I know I do know, um, God, I can't even remember the name of the album risk. That's it. <laughs> I do know risk yeah. because we talked about it on my show on justly maligned, which is what actually led to this podcast. People should go and check that out. If they want to hear us talk about that album, that's at ump.fm slash nine. I think your episode. It is. was episode um, nine. Yes. Yeah. Um, to hear me and Brian talk about Megadeth's album Risk. And, um, but yeah, so I presume we're not going to talk about that this time. 
We are not going to talk about Risk, and and uh, for someone who does not care for Megadeth as much, Risk was a terrible album to have you have to uh, <laughs> to go and listen to because it only furthers that that view. My my two choices that I was toggling between is the very first album that Megadeth ever put out, which is Killing Is My Business, um, which is a very raw and sort of underproduced album, but is a fantastic album, and. Uh, staying away from the albums that most people know, which are, of course, Rust in Peace and Countdown to Extinction, I was thinking that the other album that I was sort of toying with is the So Far So Good So What album, which is the one that comes out after Peace Sells, but before Rust in Peace. And that was the one that had the uh, cover of Anarchy in the UK on it, which I don't... Uh, have you heard their their cover of that? Uh, funnily enough, I, I have actually seen Megadeth live once. Uh, at an all day event where with Metallica actually it was on the the second half of the Black Album tour and, and they performed their cover of Anarchy in the UK at that event. Um, I don't remember a single thing about it. I know that they did it because they Dave Mustaine introduced it with this long rambling thing about punk and the anarchy symbol and stuff that was just you know just get on with it. Um, yep. And then they played it, and I literally do not remember a single note of how they played it. <laughs> okay, well, that's good then. I, so I think we're going to do that album. So I think we're going to do So Far, So Good, So What, because um, the cover is just sort of a, a straight-ahead cover. It's nothing special. But the rest of that album is, and it's a short one, it's only like 35 minutes long, is a fantastic album that has a lot of variety to it and also um, you know, is, is not as well known or even looked at these days as some of their other stuff so i think that's a good that's a good sort of early megadeth album yeah well i mean by example i've heard of it for example but only when you mentioned it i was like oh yeah yeah i've heard of that one but if you'd asked me to name megadeth albums i'd i'd name peace cells rust in peace and uh killing is my business they're basically the only album titles that i know right um i would have completely forgotten about this one now that you mention it i'm like oh yeah i have heard of that one but i i would not have remembered it on my own so i'm hopeful that it's one of those albums that if if we're if we're ever going to affect your opinion about megadeth this might be one of the albums that actually <laughs> does that so uh so yeah so we'll do so far so good so what and it's a quick listen so you you can definitely get it in a few times before the next time we record and it, it won't uh it doesn't overstay its welcome. All right. See you next time then. All righty. You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry Thrash It Out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and support us at patreon.com slash thrashitout. With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you, and good night.